You jump in the car, you're, you're heading off for your holidays, and your mind starts thinking, have I forgotten something? What have I forgotten? You know, phone chargers, they're a Hesford classic. We always forget phone chargers for some reason. Uh, or socks. I mean, obviously, I'm not going to forget my pants or my shoes, but my socks. Uh, or if it's a, you know, a big, complicated project, you'll have some kind of checklist to work through. You know, you'll be like, designer plans, check. Bank loans, check. DA approval, check. God's approval? How often do we forget to bring it before God? Did we bring it before the Lord? Well, that's exactly the case in today's story. They head out, they run into trouble, and they realize, oh, we forgot to ask God. Israel goes to war without asking God. So let's get into the passage. Uh, Firstly, setting out without God, verses 1 to 9. Let me jump right in. Verse 1 says, Joram, son of Ahab, became king over Israel in Samaria. There's a new chapter, it's a new king, uh, and we've got Ahab's next son, Joram. And the verse gives us uh, a little summary of his life in God's eyes. It says, He did what was evil in the Lord's sight, but not like his father and mother, for he removed the sacred pillar of Baal his father had made. In summary, Joram is a a kind of foot-in-each-camp kind of guy. He wasn't as bad as uh, Jezebel or Ahab, his parents, for he removed the sacred pillar of Baal, quite a grand gesture, trying to appease Yahweh. Look, I've removed the pillar. But verse 3 continues. It says, Nevertheless, Joram clung to the sins of Jeroboam, son of Nebat, had caused Israel to commit. He did not turn away from them. Nevertheless, we are told, he didn't turn from his sins. All the other idolatry in the land remained. The prophets of Baal still remained. The pillars and altars to all these different gods still remained in Israel. And chapter 3, the whole chapter really is a tale of what it is to have a foot in each camp, two bulb each way, hedging your bets when it comes to God. And as you might guess, things don't go well. Well, you can't understand the story unless you know a little bit of the tension between the northern and the southern kingdoms of Israel. So this was Israel. Um, Let me fill you in. Um, Notice verse 1. It says, Joram became king over Israel and Samaria during the 18th year of Judah's king Jehoshaphat. And so there's two parts to Israel, uh, um, the northern and the southern kingdom, Israel and then Judah, Two kingdoms, two kings, um, the northern and the southern. And you can see there, um, it's, the, the wording can be a bit different. Israel can refer to either the northern part or just you know, the whole thing, um, but you can normally work out what we mean. But the, the key thing to know is that the northern kingdom, um, they're, they're, they're wiped out. They go into um, exile and they are no more. But from the southern kingdom is where Jesus uh, comes from. They remain uh, faithful uh, and all the way through. Uh, and so the, the, the northern kings, are uh, almost all of them are bad, whereas the southern kings, are uh, some of them aren't great, but on the whole, they are walking with Yahweh. And so this is the tension uh, throughout a lot of uh, kings, and this passage today uh, is playing between this tension between Samaria and Judah. Samaria, Israel, who followed Baal, and the story will, will trace this out. Well... You can't have a story without a predicament, a problem, or or a bad guy. And so enter Moab, 
uh, and their god, Chemosh. Verses 4 to 6 introduce them. Let me read verse 4. King Misha of Moab was a sheep breeder. He used to pay the king of Israel 100,000 lambs uh, and the wool of 100,000 rams. And so you can see here the Moabites were a vassal state of Israel. They, they'd pay tax to them, pay them tribute, but they were sick of it. They wanted out. Verse 5 says, The king of Moab rebelled against the king of Israel. Cry havoc, let slip the dogs of war. Sound the alarm, assemble the troops to battle stations. Moab are rebelling. If I can um, pause our story for a short archaeological interlude. Uh, There was a fascinating discovery made, which very much relates to our passage, the Misha steel, uh, and it was quite the find. The stone is a tribute written by the the Moabite king in our passage today. He he wrote on the stone uh, praising his god, Chemosh, uh, for defeating Israel for him. And so it describes the same war that our passage describes. So it's an incredible thing. We have these two parallel... Uh, accounts of that time. It's absolutely fascinating. The same story. What's interesting is when you compare the two accounts, it's a bit like comparing uh, news reports from uh, Ukraine and Russia of the same event. You know, Ukraine are like, oh, we we took out 10 tanks and it was a total victory, and the Russians are like, oh, no, they they just punctured one tyre of a wheelbarrow and we had to iron a shirt or something. It's completely different. Uh, and yet, what, what it does do is it, it, um, it authenticates scripture because the two accounts have all the same names the, the names of people, the names of the gods, the names of the places. It very much authenticates uh, the Old Testament as a, a work of true history. We're not reading fiction, but history. Like the Gospels in the New Testament, everyone must weigh these accounts and determine. Is Yahweh the true God? Is Yahweh faithful for a thousand generations? Well, let's return to our story. Moab rebels, and so Israel responds. Verse 6, So King Joram marched out from Samaria at that time and mobilized all Israel. It's on. War is declared. And Joram looks to raise a coalition of the willing. Who will fight with me? Verse 7 continues, Then he sent a message to King Jehoshaphat of Judah. The king of Moab has rebelled against me. Will you go fight against Moab? And immediately the, the narrative gives us the king of Judah's reply. I will go. I am as you are. My people as your people. My horses as your horses. He jumps right on board. And then immediately they turn to military tactics and planning in verse 8. It says, uh, then he asked, which route should we take? Joram replied, the route of the wilderness of Edom. You see here, Jehoshaphat puts himself in the hands of Joram, relying on him to determine the military strategy. Verse 9 continues, so the king of Israel, the king of Judah, and the king of Edom set out. Three kings. Uh, Edom would have been another vassal state of Israel, and so they join in to march out to war. They make plans, they set out, and spoiler alert, they run into trouble. <laughs> Immediately, verse 9 continues, after they had travelled their indirect route for seven days, they had no water for the army or their animals. Didn't take long. The Judean king moves straight from agreement, planning an action, and walks straight into disaster. 
And, and, and of course, in those moments, you ask, how did this happen? Uh, and the passage leaves us with no doubt. Uh, firstly, it's because they didn't seek God's counsel. And secondly, it's because Joram fears idols are not God. He's got a foot in each camp. And we'll come to the second reason as the story unfolds. But let's look at the first reason now. They did not seek God's counsel. They moved quickly. It looked so good. There was a coalition, three versus one. They had a great plan, but they forgot to ask God. So this is the route that they would have taken. Um, it really is a, a very clever strategy. You can see Israel, Judah, they kind of surround Moab. Uh, Moab's kind of in the middle there. Uh, and then there's Edom down the bottom. And they would have expected them to attack from the top, surely. But instead, they come through the desert. You can see there's this desert area there. It's, it's a surprise attack. It's the unexpected route. And military uh, textbooks say two things about this approach, this strategy. Firstly, it says it's necessary. You need to try and throw off balance your enemy, try and surprise them. But secondly, such an approach is dangerous. High risk, high reward. Uh, the quintessential modern example is Hitler's advance through the Adans forest leading to the fall of France in 1940. They chose an unexpected route through the so-called impenetrable forest. They surprised their opponents, they moved quickly, and all of a sudden they had taken France with their speed. But the Achilles heel of such an approach, uh, well, it, becomes, it became evident uh, in that war uh, when, the, when the Nazi war machine attacked the Soviet Union, again, trying to move quickly in the summer of 1941. They moved to encircle again, but they couldn't keep up supplies to their men. They got stuck in a war of attrition, and then winter came, and it all fell apart, didn't it? I'm sure you remember our stories. The, the, the Germans were lighting fires under their vehicles to try and warm them up enough to get them to start. They were totally caught out. So much of life's uncertain. You try the same thing again, and you get caught out. Traps lurk at every turn. But God's children can turn to him. They can bring it before him. God's nation, they're in such a privileged position, weren't they? They could ask God. God's people, we can turn to him. So why don't we? This is the question we bounced around before we went to our Bible reading, isn't it? Why don't we seek God before we set out? Well, what's fascinating is um, the last time the Israelite king asked Jehoshaphat for help was uh, back in 1 Kings uh, chapter 22, in verse 4 there. So he, the Hebrew Old Testament narratives do this. They tell the same story again, then something's different, and you notice the differences. And so the same thing had happened previously, uh, and Jehoshaphat replied exactly the same way, but, but he added the line in, first, please let me ask what God's will is. And so, of course, that's what a king would say, and yet in our passage, you notice it. He doesn't say it. He just jumps straight in. It's obvious to seek the Lord's will first. God's the guy in charge. It's such a no-brainer. It was so obvious and easy for the king to do. But why don't we? Do, do we just forget, like forgetting to brush our teeth? Or maybe it's more like forgetting to pick your kids up from school. As I've reflected uh, on my life, you know, we're, I'm sure you guys were thinking about it uh, a few moments ago. I think, I think it's because we think it'll be okay. So we just go ahead, you know, you know, I buy another car, the money's there, I just buy the car. Why involve God? I book the holiday, I've got the time, so I board the plane. You know, I, I call the people, I send the email, I've got this covered. No need to get God involved. And what's missing? 
I think very, very deep down. I think we lack humility. We don't fear God as we should. Um, as I was thinking about this, uh, I pulled out what, of now, uh, what is now a bit of a classic, uh, Prayer and the Voice of God, uh, a book by um, Philip Jensen and Tony Payne. Uh, and, and they reflect on this same question and they say, the real basis of our difficulty is not intellectual, it's moral and spiritual. They say it's because of sin and Satan's attempts to prevent us. Uh, let me read another quote. They say, prayer brings us low. It forces us to admit that we are not independent or self-sufficient. Two lies that are very dear to us. And Satan, the father of lies, wants, to keep, wants us to keep believing them. He wants us to stand tall and to go it alone, not humbly kneel and express our dependence on God for everything. That's the argument First uh, Peter makes, chapter 5. should come up on screen. Humble yourselves, therefore, under the mighty hand of God, so that he may exalt you at the proper time, casting all your cares on him because he cares about you. Notice it links their humility with turning to God, casting our cares upon him. It's the lie of the world, or the devil. It's the lie of our wealth that we don't need God. It's the lie of our strength that we don't need to pray to God. We're called to cast our cares on him uh, because he cares about us. There's a beautiful parallelism there, isn't there? Cast your cares on him because he cares about you. Your worries cannot exhaust the concern that God has for you. Just let that soak in. I think some of us need to hear that. What's been on your mind lately? What, what concerns, cares, worries, anxieties do you have? Here, uh, Peter says, cast all, every single care on him because he cares about you. What a privilege. But back to our story, uh, where it's too late to turn to God, verses 9 to 14. Remember that they've set out in verse 9. No sooner have they set out, they run into trouble. Verse 9 says they've got no water uh, for their army or for their animals. And immediately Joram blames God, uh, when of course it was he that made the plan in verse 10. But Jehoshaphat, who does follow Yahweh, uh, realizes his mistake and so says in verse 11, Isn't there a prophet of the Lord here? Let's inquire of Yahweh through him. And so they go to Elisha, God's prophet, in verse 13. But they're no doubt a little bit surprised by Elisha's greeting. He says, um, uh, Elisha said to King Joram of Israel, We have nothing in common. Go to the prophets of your father and your mother. We have nothing in common, he says. This is, it's not a very diplomatic opening line, is it? <laughs> Where's the, where's the abruptness coming from? It's so abrupt. What's going on? It continues in verse uh, 13, where, where Joram again blames God, uh, but Elisha responds, As the Lord of hosts lives, I stand before him. If I did not have respect for the king uh, Jehoshaphat of Judah, I would not look at you. I wouldn't take notice of you. Why is he being so harsh? 
What a contrast to how King Jehoshaphat greeted Joram. Remember he said, I am as you are. My people are your people. My horse is your horses. Whereas Elisha says, we have nothing in common. The story is forcing us to go back and reconsider how wise was it for Jehoshaphat to jump into a partnership with Joram. Elisha, on behalf of God, says to Joram, it's too late. Go to the prophets, the false gods that you still worship. Use the altars to these gods if you want help, because you've made your decision. You tried to play the field, but I can't be played. And so now it's too late. It's a terrible reminder, isn't it, that there is a point where it's too late to turn to God. He won't be shared. He won't be put in the same basket as his other false gods, which vie for our attention. If you try to have both Yahweh and idols, you will only have the idols who are dead. He cannot deliver you when you're thirsty. So God says, turn to me before it's too late. And so that's kind of, I think, the lesson from Joram's perspective. But there's a different kind of lesson from Jehoshaphat, the king of Judah, from his perspective. Uh, And it's something about not being naive about entering into partnerships, isn't it? I think we're led to this especially because uh, 2 Chronicles chapter 20 uh, talks about Jehoshaphat and he's judged as being a faithful king to Yahweh but he's condemned for some of the alliances he made with some of these pagan nations, the pagan uh, Israelite nation at that point. And so God's uh, king says, I am as you are, your people are my people. But look where it lands him. He jumped on board with the war effort, forgetting to ask God, And now he's stuck in this partnership, a partnership that cannot work because one party does not fear God. Look at how Paul um, says we should live in 2 Corinthians in the New Testament, chapter 6. He says, Do not be mismatched with unbelievers, for what partnership is there between righteousness and lawlessness? Or what fellowship does light have with darkness? What agreement does Christ have with Belial? Baal, I'm not saying that right, it's Satan. (laughs) Or what does a believer have in common with an unbeliever? He's saying believers are mismatched with unbelievers. It's simple. What agreement can they have? It's only a matter of time until disagreement uh, arises. Because fear of God is such a fundamental belief, it changes everything else. You know, we could disagree about our, our favorite footy team or what kind of music we like. It's not really going to create many flow-on disagreements. It's not really that big a thing. But if you disagree about who really runs the world, about the gospel of Jesus, it is so fundamental. It changes how you see everything else. Paul says, what can we really have in common with unbelievers? We need to very carefully consider the partnerships that we enter into, whether they're romantic partnerships or or business partnerships um, or, you know, all kinds of things, going to a sporting club or going to a school or getting a a music or a Netflix subscription. These things, they're all kinds of partnerships, aren't they? We enter into something, it's going to have an effect on us. It's going to lead us somewhere. We need to not be naive about the direction things are going to pull us in. Are they going to lead us to God or away from him. Every idol has its demands, and God has his. We cannot serve two masters. Let me continue reading from that passage in 2 Corinthians. It says, And what agreement does God's sanctuary have with idols? 
For we are the sanctuary of the living God, as God has said. I will dwell among them, I'll walk among them, I'll be their God and they'll be my people. Therefore come out from among them and be separate, says the Lord. Do not touch any unclean thing and I will welcome you. You see the argument it's making? We are a sanctuary, a church of God. God dwells in us. And God isn't going to share us with idols. Who is in our hearts? If it's an idol, God won't be there. If it's God, idols can't be there. And so God says, come out, be separate, and then he will welcome us. We need to be very careful about entering into partnerships because there's only room for one God in our hearts. Uh, Let me say a little bit about some, if we're already in a partnership with an unbeliever, I know many of us are in many different ways, if we're already in a partnership, we need to make sure that Yahweh is first in our hearts. We need to not be pulled off his course and we need to look to minister to those that we're in partnerships with that they might come to know the true God and serve him as we do. But let's get back to our story. Uh, The final section, uh, failing to fear God, I've called it, verses 15 to 27. Uh, Verse 16, the Lord's word comes to Elisha, the prophet, who says, this is what the Lord says, dig a ditch, uh, dig ditch after ditch in this wadi, a wadi is just in in the valley, Uh, for the Lord says, you will not see wind or rain, but the wadi will be filled with water and you will drink, you and your cattle and your animals This is easy in the Lord's sight. He will also hand Moab over to you. So God gives a plan. And he says, I'm going to hand Moab over to you if you carry it out. They come to God asking for water, but God also will provide victory. It's easy in the Lord's sight, we're told. Because God is a God who gives generously. He gives beyond our wildest dreams. It's easy for him. I love that line. Well, the Moabites, uh, they come out to fight. Uh, Sure enough, they see the water in the valley and they think it's blood. Verse 23, it continues. This is blood, they exclaimed. The kings have clashed swords and killed each other. So to the spoil Moab. You might think, how could they possibly have thought that that was blood? Uh, And the reason is actually, uh, this is a clever move by God, you need to realise, because uh, a little bit previously, this exact thing had happened to the Moabites. They formed a coalition, uh, they went out to war against Israel, and then they all turned on each other and all the different kings killed each other in a huge bloodbath. And so this is in the back of their head, then they come up to the Israelite camp and they see what they think is blood and they go, ah, same thing's happened. Clever move by, by Yahweh, he knows what he's doing. So, of course, they rush in uh, and they're easily beaten by the very much still alive Israelites. They push forward. They, they, they go and they take the Moabite cities, as God has asked them to do. And all of a sudden, it's down to the last city at the end of verse 25. They're there at the last city. They're laying siege to it. The king of Moab can see that he's about to be overrun. So when there's nothing else that he could do, he does the unthinkable. He sacrifices his son to the false god. Verse 27 says, So he took his firstborn son, who was to become king in his place, and offered him as a burnt offering on the city wall. Great wrath was on the Israelites, and they withdrew from him and returned to their land. 
This is so shocking. The king sacrifices his son on the city wall for all to see, and it's sickening. And it turns the tide of the war. Do you notice that? The Israelites, they withdraw. The Moabites, they keep their city. They're no longer a vassal state of Israel. And that's how our story ends. That's the conclusion to the whole chapter. And you kind of go, what's going on? The child sacrifice works. How can that be? Well, let me give you uh, some background, some theology, and then some application. Uh, by way of background, well, child sacrifice, this was, a, this was a thing that these pagan gods demanded, especially the Moabite god Chemosh. Uh, First Kings speaks of the detestable god Chemosh and these practices, uh, and, and Solomon introduced Chemosh into Israel, and God hated it. Joram had failed to remove these altars, and so he continued in this sin. It's just incredible to think that Joram could be offering sacrifices to, to Yahweh and to Chemosh at the same time. Isn't that? It's abhorrent to Yahweh. So that's some background, some theology. God was not like these gods. Imagine being put in the same basket as a God who demanded the sacrifice of unwilling, defenseless, dependent children. God isn't going to share the sanctuary with Chemosh or any idol for that matter. Uh, and yet, these sacrifices are really the only way to appease a false idol. You have to bribe an idol. False gods always take bribery or payment because false gods are like the people that make them. Whereas it's complete opposite with God. Think of the gospel where God provides the sacrifice, not the worshipper where God sacrifices himself. That's the lesson with Abraham and his son Isaac, and of course with Jesus, God's son. Yahweh is totally different to pagan gods. He offers grace, true forgiveness. You can't bribe God for his loyalty. Rather, God offers grace. He saves and then says, now live for me. Stop living for idols and serve me in the name of Jesus who served you. And this is what he offered Joram in the war. If you only trust me, if you do what I say, I'll deliver Moab to you. And yet the story ends with Moab winning. It gets turned on its head. So why does it all go so wrong? Well, we're not told lots, but I think uh, in the context, using our theology, it, it makes most sense to say that the, the wrath that you see there resulting from the child sacrifice, it was not from the false god, uh, but from within the people themselves. Uh, and the Hebrew word for, for wrath there, or fury, uh, it's one that's used in the context of people, so it supports this. So here's what's going on. The wrath was, it was from the Moabite soldiers who, who were invigorated to fight by the sacrifice. Uh, and it was from the fear of the Israelites and the Edomites who, who believed in Chemosh, who were afraid of Chemosh. Remember I said... Um, uh, there are two kind of great lessons from the passage. And, and the second one was about having a foot in each camp. This is, this is how they come unstuck. They didn't fear God. When you fear false gods, you, you, you fall under their power. You fall prey to them. And that's what happened to these armies. They, they feared God who'd been paid the ultimate... Uh, they feared uh, the Chemosh God who'd been paid the ultimate bribe and so feared the power that this would produce. And so that's the application. If you fear God, he'll deliver you. But if you fear idols, 
you'll be condemned to their futility, to serving them. This all reminded me of uh, um, death sticks. It's not something we talk about very much. Um, but you find this in a lot of traditional cultures. I have a, a picture of one up there, of uh, Aboriginals um, in the Northern Territory, um, pointing a magic uh, death stick. So, and the way it works is like there's a, a magic man of, of the culture, and he, he curses a stick, often it's, it's a bone, and they, they point it at someone, and, and they put a curse on him that this person will die. Um, and it's incredible because people die from it. This, this person that has this curse put on them with this death stick, the, the person dies. And there's uh, all kinds of documented cases <coughs> to medical journals um, documenting this. You know, there was a case up in Darwin and, and these doctors uh, in this hospital have got this, this patient there and he's had this um, curse put on him and they're watching this guy die uh, from fear. That, you know, there's nothing, there's nothing wrong with him and yet... They, over a couple of days, they're watching him die. And uh, it's incredible, the, the power of these curses. And I say this because this is how false idols work, false gods. They have power over us when we believe in them, when we fear them. If we idolize money, we'll be driven by fear. We'll devote our lives to it. If we idolize success or popularity... This, these things will have power over us. We will not be able to escape their curse. But Jesus offers us freedom. He says that his yoke is easy, his burden is light. If we will fear God above all else, we will be set free and be delivered from our enemies. And so that's it. That's our passage. We're reminded today not to set out without God, to always turn to him in prayer, because we need to fear him above all else. Uh, and our humility, we need to have humility to see that we need him, that we may be driven to him in prayer. Uh, and we see that you cannot uh, balance God with other gods. Look what happens when they try to do that. If you believe in the power of idols, God will have nothing to do with you. He won't be shared with detestable pagan gods. And so live with Christ. So that it is no longer us who live, but Christ in us. Live by faith in the name of the one who gave himself for us. Let me pray. Heavenly Father, may we fear you above all else. May we seek your counsel in all things. By the power that saves us, may you lead us that we may live for you. In his name we pray. Amen.